0: Hey there! Hi there! Ho there! Welcome to the Matt Watch That podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to review a movie or TV pilot that I probably should have seen but never got around to. It could be a recent favorite, Critic's Choice, or Cult Classic. Everyone can join in on the fun. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start... When I decided to do this podcast, I didn't just want to review movies that were in my wheelhouse. There are plenty of films from the 80s and 90s that I missed out on, but I wanted this podcast to be all-encompassing. The reason I became a film major in college was to be exposed to all types of cinema. You can learn as much or more from a film that you don't like as you can with a film that you do. That's how you start to find your own voice. Yes, movies from the 30s, 40s, or 50s feel old to a new generation, but classic film noir are some of the most beautifully shot motion pictures. Why wouldn't you want to absorb that as a fan? Now, I've noticed recently that there's been a clash of the generations. Boomers dislike millennials, Generation Z dislikes millennials, and people like myself in the unproblematic Gen X just laugh at all of you. But I honestly don't understand dismissing people because of age, For all the millennials who say, Okay, Boomer, I want to bring you in on a little secret. You're gonna get old one day. And I'm sure you'll want your opinion to be heard too. And boomers need to remember that you were young once too, and probably did things that their parents didn't understand. Yes, that stupid video your grandchild made lip-syncing to a rap song just got 50,000 likes, and they can monetize it. So stop rolling your eyes. Despite this, I do have one criticism of the younger generations. I've had too many conversations where people in their 20s feel real comfortable saying, I'm a millennial, to excuse a lack of historical knowledge. Just because it happened before you were born doesn't mean you can be ignorant about it. Do you know who George Washington is? What about the Beatles? The Apollo 11 moon landing? You know, the one Stanley Kubrick faked? Those who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it. Someone said that you must be curious about the things that happened outside of your lifetime. Now, I'm going to turn on a little Nirvana and work out to (laughs) Taibo. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. One star is Skip It, two stars Watch at Your Own Risk, three stars Standard fare. four stars Worth Checking Out, five stars Must See. Now, if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. So let's jump into it. I'll keep the spoilers to a minimum, tangents to a maximum. These are my ruminations and observations of the movie Gentlemen Prefer Blondes from 1953, about a showgirl named Lorelai Lee whose engagement to a wealthy man leads her soon-to-be father-in-law to hire a private investigator to follow her and report any inappropriate behavior. It was based on the 1925 novel, which was adapted into a Broadway musical in 1949, starring Miss Carol Channing. That's my impression of Ryan Stiles' impression of Carol Channing. It sounds nothing like her. If I don't watch out, it kind of slips into a little Woody Allen. (laughs) My impressions are so bad that they can actually be used as their own characters. Like, no one would ever hear the voice I just did and go, That sounds a lot like Carol Channing. It was directed by Howard Hawks, who also helmed comedies Bringing Up Baby and His Girl Friday, crime dramas Scarface and The Big Sleep, and westerns Rio Bravo and Hatari. He was a premier director of his time, very versatile, vastly underrated in the discussion of influential directors. Look up his filmography, it's very impressive. The screenplay was written by Charles Lederer, based on the musical comedy by Joseph Fields and Anita Luz. As a side note, he was the nephew of actress Marion Davis so keep that in your noggin for when it comes up on Jeopardy. He also scribed Ocean's Eleven, Mutiny on the Bounty, and The Thing from Another World, which would eventually be remade as The Thing by John Carpenter. All classic cinema. The movie starts off with a musical number, not surprisingly for a musical. Showgirls Lorelei Lee and Dorothy Shaw sing a light-hearted romp, Two Girls from Little Rock. The song's lyrics contain lines about marrying a millionaire, so they're planting the seeds that this will be a theme throughout the movie. Lorelai is portrayed by Marilyn Monroe, who's known for the seven-year itch, monkey business, and the longest recorded version of Happy Birthday. Her character is infatuated with money and pretty things. She values valuables over love and happiness. Now, I ain't saying she's a gold digger, but she kind of comes off as one. Jane Russell has appeared in His Kind of Woman, Foxfire, and The Outlaw. She plays Dorothy, her best friend, who's looking for love despite the amount in a potential suitor's bank account. She's more interested in the size of their... pecs. She is confident and flirtatious, has a dry wit, much more assertive. In the audience of their show, Lorelai's boyfriend, Gus Esmond Jr., watches their performance and gives a wave. Immediately, you can tell he's enamored with her, and that he's way out of his league. The role is admirably embodied by Tommy Noonan, who was seen in Promises, Promises, The Return of Jesse James, and A Star is Born. You can figure out which version. As the song finishes, the women go back to the dressing room where they're greeted by Gus. He wants to take their relationship to the next level, and proposes to Lorelai with a diamond that can be seen from the International Space Station. After she accepts, it makes me really uncomfortable the amount of times she called him Daddy, especially with that helium baby voice. Is this movie the reason why that fetish exists? Has anyone who enjoys their partner referring to them as Daddy really thought that one out? Do you understand the connotation? Should I bring back my impression of Woody Allen? I really like it when you call me daddy, soon (laughs) ye. So, um, Gus Edsman Sr. disapproves of his son's relationship. As Lorelai and Dorothy are set to embark on a cruise for Paris, the soon-to-be father-in-law hires a private investigator to tail them. He believes Lorelai is only marrying his son for money and wants her to be caught in an uncompromising position to prove she doesn't love him. The private investigator, Ernie Malone, is portrayed by Elliot Reed, who is in The Absent-Minded Professor, Vicky, and Inherit the Wind. You can figure out which version. As he digs into the activities of Lorelei, he ends up befriending Dorothy, and a romance starts to blossom. Uh-oh. At dinner, Lorelei meets Sir Francis Beekman, who owns a diamond mine, and immediately she becomes captivated with him. Well, his money at least. When he visits her room, the private investigator takes a picture of them together through the window. Dorothy spots this and puts two and two together, figuring out the scheme. Now she and Lorelei must think of a plan to get back those pictures. Gentlemen Prefer Blondes was a campy little movie. Marilyn Monroe and Jane Russell make a good pair. They played off each other well. One is flirtatious and sexy, the other is confident and brash. Some of the jokes had to be considered risque for the time. Two young men were talking and one said, suppose the ship hits an iceberg and sinks, which one of them do you save from drowning? The other one responds, those girls couldn't drown. You can make the inference. I don't normally talk about costumes, that's not really my lane, and if you looked at my fashion, you'd agree. But the outfits throughout the film were pretty spectacular. The costumes were designed by Trevia, a frequent collaborator of Marilyn Monroe. He famously took a photograph of her in a burlap sack to prove she can look beautiful in anything. He won an Academy Award for Best Costume Design for Adventures of Don Juan and nominated for The Stripper, There's No Business Like Show Business, and How to Marry a Millionaire. I like the direction of the movie. It was shot similar to how it would be staged for Broadway with longer takes. The musical numbers were directed uncredited by choreographer Jack Cole. The sequences aren't as elaborate as has been seen in Singing in the Rain or Oliver, but they felt appropriate for the film. Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend inspired the music video for Madonna's Material Girl, as well as countless other artists. During the number Anyone Here for Love, Dorothy accidentally gets knocked into the pool. One of the men was supposed to jump over her, completely misses his footing, and wails her. She seemed like a good sport about it. The music was upbeat and catchy. This is classic big band era. When I played trumpet in orchestra, these types were always the most enjoyable to perform. The hardest music I'd ever played was Guys and Dolls. Frank Loesser knew how to write lead parts for trumpeters. The majority of songs were taken from the Broadway musical, most notably Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend and Bye Bye Baby, which were written by Jules Stein and Leo Robin. Additional songs were composed specifically for the film by Hoagie Carmichael and Harold Adamson, including Anyone Here for Love and When Love Goes Wrong, Nothing Goes Right. The runtime is 1 hour 31 minutes, which is unusually short for a musical, but I'm not complaining. It had a budget of $2.3 million and grossed $5.3 million at the box office. Ultimately, the movie comes down to Round Windows, All Ashore, Invalid, Piggy, Booster Seat, Animal Magnetism, Where's the Tiara, Bastille, Blonde Mantrap, and Sergeant Slaughter, Esquire. I give it 3.5 out of 5 stars. If you've seen Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattWatchThat. Damn. Moving right along, each episode I'm going to post clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there will be a playlist called Matt Watch That Playback. This could be the most straightforward clip I've selected. Baby's hearing for the first time. That's pretty self-explanatory, but I need to fill some time. So, I'm truly amazed at the advancement of technology. Just the fact that our smartphones have replaced at least 25 devices and it's not much larger than an index card is pretty amazing. Wi-Fi? That's incredible. I can access the internet wherever I am. I'm still equally amazed and terrified by planes, though I'm still not on board with self-driving cars. So when I came across this video where babies are hearing sounds for the first time, I had to do a little digging. How is that possible? It's called cochlear implants. It's a device that stimulates the nerve and allows people to hear. I hope that explanation is sufficient enough because that's all I understood. It's like explaining the Matrix as a man dressed in black takes a pill and funky things happen. When I was younger, I used to know how to sign the alphabet and can still spell out my name, still know a few words and phrases here and there. Then in junior high, I became friends with a few hearing-impaired students, and, being the intellectual I was, asked if they could show me how to curse in sign language. I can't remember the multiplication table, but I can sign you 15 curses. With that being said... I've read a few articles about how some in the hearing-impaired community are against cochlear implants because they believe that deafness doesn't need to be cured, people should be accepted for who they are. It's hard to argue against that sentiment, but I'm not here to weigh in. I just think that it's an uplifting clip that deserves to be shared. It's available in the Matt Watch That Playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, you heard it. That's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about Would I Lie to You? I am way too excited for this one. I'm a huge fan of British television, and this is my absolute favorite comedy panel show. Even the least funniest episode is more hilarious than the majority of things out there. The premise of the show is to sort out the facts from the fiction, There are two teams with three celebrity players each who receive points for accurately predicting if a story they're hearing is true or a lie. The first round is called Home Truths, where a celebrity is asked to read out a statement on a card they've never seen before. It could be a true story from their lives at which they have to convince the other team it's not, or it could be a complete lie at which they have to make up details on the spot to convince the other team it's true. The celebrity players have to be on their toes and use their improvisational skills and quick minds to fool the other team. Now, if the story is true, they can't lie about it, but they can be vague and somewhat evasive, and these celebrities are excellent at it. The second round is called This Is My, where they bring on a mystery guest who has a close connection to one of the panelists. Each member will claim that it's them, and the other team has to guess which one is telling the truth. The last round is Quickfire Lies, which is basically the same premise as the first, but with shorter stories. The first two series were presented by Angus Dayton, but the show found its groove with the arrival of Rob Brydon, who has hosted ever since. The teams are captained by David Mitchell and Lee Mack. They could be considered opposites, but they have incredible chemistry and play off each other really well. David Mitchell starred in Peep Show with Academy Award winner Olivia Colman, and a few series with his comedy partner Robert Webb, such as The Mitchell and Webb Situation, That Mitchell and Webb Sound, and That Mitchell and Webb Look. He's a bit prim and proper, his line of questioning is more logical, and his sense of humor is dry, he's probably best known for going on rants, usually about seemingly insignificant things. Lee Mack is a stand-up comedian who starred in Not Going Out, which I watched consistently for the first five seasons, but episodes stopped being uploaded to YouTube so I fell off. He once appeared on The Graham Norton Show and told a story so funny it made John Cleese laugh. When you can bring a python to tears, that's the pinnacle of comedy. Lee Mack, he's just very whimsical and gives such quick responses to questions The writers usually give him ridiculous lies, and the stories he comes up with are incredibly funny. They all have a really good rapport. You can tell by the way that they look at each other that there's a lot of respect there, especially after a funny line. I can't explain this concept between stand-up comedians, but if one makes a funny line, if another comedian doesn't laugh and says like, eh, that's funny, They are so jealous that they didn't think of that line. That's when you know they really appreciate each other's humor and mind. I'm not sure why there aren't more comedy panel shows like this in America. It might be because Americans always seem to have some animus behind their jokes. Whereas British celebrities tend to be more self-deprecating, dry, or make fun of life and not necessarily each other. Also, I think British celebrities are okay with acting silly or looking foolish. You know, American celebrities always have to be Instagram-ready. But anyway, the show is not just for stand-ups either. There are presenters, actors, news reporters, reality stars. They have to have the right personality and willing to be playful. On occasion, the guest panelists outshine the regulars. Bob Mortimer is a frequent player and tells some of the most outrageous stories, and you'd be surprised to find out how many are actually true. Did Bob Mortimer invent a game called Theft and Shrubbery? Does Rob Brydon cozy up with his wife using a cuddle jumper? Is Bermuda an acronym of Lee Mack's ex-girlfriends? Are elephants attracted to David Mitchell? Does Claudia Winkleman give everyone an animal label? These are some of the truths or lies you'll hear on this brilliantly funny show. I cannot recommend this enough. Would I Lie to You has been on for 14 seasons, 136 episodes from 2007 to today. The series currently airs on BBC One, and episodes can be found on YouTube. That's all for this edition of Matt Watch That. Thanks for listening to me babble. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or suggestions as to what movie or TV pilot I should see next, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. I do plan on having an interactive element, but I need them listeners. So follow, subscribe, like, and spread the word. Until next time, bye-bye, baby. Millennials who say, okay, Burmer, Burmer. He believes that Lorelei is only marrying his son for money and wants her to be caught in an uncompromising. (laughs) on a what? You can learn as much or more from films you don't like as much as you something. (laughs) David Mitchell starred in Peep Show and a few series with his comedy partner, Robert Webb, such as The Whipple. The Whipple. (laughs) that's what you get Mitchell and Webb. You get Whipple. I don't know where the peas come from, but okay.